What's up, everyone? This is Cortland from NDHackers.com, and you're listening to the ND Hackers podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How do they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions at their companies and in their personal lives? And what exactly makes their companies tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own successful online businesses. Joining me in today's episode is Peldi, the founder of a company called Balsamic Wireframes. Balsamic is a graphical tool that you can use to sketch out the user interface for pretty much anything. So if you're building a website or a web app, a mobile app, or even a desktop app, it doesn't really matter. No matter what it is, you can use Balsamic to quickly put together a wireframe for what the interface should look like. On top of that, Peldi was also one of my earliest inspirations as an indie hacker. He famously started blogging about his adventures as a solo founder and what he was working on and even exactly how much money he was making way back in 2008 when it seemed like pretty much nobody else was doing this except for a small handful of others. So it's safe to say that any hackers itself would not be here if not for the efforts of Peldi and people like him. So Peldi, welcome to the show. I am stoked to have you on here. Uh, thanks for having me, Cortland. You're too kind. You started Balsamic in 2008. So that means the company turned 10 years old last year. And to the best of my knowledge, you guys are generating something like six or seven million dollars in revenue annually. Is that right? Uh, yeah, around six, more six than seven. What I want to talk to you about the most today is Balsamic's longevity. How exactly do you bootstrap a company as a solo founder that ends up growing and staying healthy for over a decade? So that's it. That's my only question. The rest is just going to be <laughs> 50 minutes of you answering that question. No problem. I got, I got one. Luck is the, the answer. No, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah. Interview over. <laughs> My goal here is really just to ask questions that date you and make you feel as old as possible this entire episode. Uh, I did the same thing to Rob Walling. Yeah. You know, I, um, I, uh, I was looking at all the other previous, uh, guests on this podcast and I was like, oh man, you know, these, all these people are all younger, better looking, more interesting than me. <laughs> I feel like an old guy now, but that's all right. I'll take it. Well, I don't know about younger or more interesting, but better looking for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk about the early stages of Balsamic. And I know this is this is ancient history at this point. This is 2008. But I think most people listening in are at the phase where they just want to start a company and they're looking for inspiration around like these very early days. Do you remember how you first came up with the idea to start Balsamic? Yes. I grew up in Italy and I moved to California to go to Silicon Valley and, you know, be a programmer there. And what I told my parents was, I'm going to go to San Francisco, learn everything I can about making software and then move back to Italy and apply that knowledge here. And that was a total lie. It was just a way for them to be able to say, yes, okay, you can go as long as you promise you're coming back. But really what I was thinking was, I'm just going to move to California. I'm just going to work for a large corporation, climb the ladder, and I'm going to be happy uh, doing that. And so that was my goal. I, I didn't really have uh, any entrepreneurial spirit uh, right out of school. So I worked for Micromedia, then became Adobe for six years. And every year, as I started as a QA engineer, then I became a program, uh, developer, then a lead developer. And, you know, every year I would sort of get a promotion, get a new boss, and uh, climb the ladder, which was fantastic. Then after maybe four or five years, 
I read somewhere about this book called You Have to Be a Little Crazy, The Truth About Starting Your Own Business. And I thought, oh, that sounds interesting. Let, let's see. And so I bought it. It's a short little booklet. And I got to page 16 before throwing it in the corner saying, no, 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 no. This is not for me. I, I'm never going to start a business. <laughs> it's insane. <laughs> What turns you off? Well, I mean, it just basically spoke about all the realities of the pressure it puts on your family and yourself and financially and, you know, all, you know, the book is kind of biased. It only talks about the bad stuff, of course, but it worked for me because it really made me happy to be an employee where I was. So then after another two or three years, I was kind of getting tired of just being a developer. I worked on a large team at Adobe. Uh, we were making uh, online meeting software. And uh, I worked with designers, product managers, uh, other developers, QA, translation, legal, sales, support. I kept thinking, what do all these people do all day? You know, I, I understand the development part, and that's fun, and I love it. But there's a lot more. How do you price a piece of software? How do you decide to support things? I was just very curious. And so I thought, maybe I'll become a product manager. Because the product manager, I could see, was kind of the in-between person that interfaced with all the other teams, including the development team that I was part of. And I thought, that sounds like a fun job. That way I can learn more about all these different parts of making software. And so I seriously considered becoming a product manager. The problem was that at Adobe, you had to have a, a business degree, an MBA, in order to become a product manager. That was a prerequisite, which is not there anymore, I've heard. But at the time, uh, you had to do that. And so I seriously considered going to business school just to become a product manager. And then... My product manager friends at Adobe talked me out of it. Thank goodness. Basically, they said, you're already making too much money. You have a family now. You're not going to be able to forego your, sal your current salary and spend, you know, a hundred grand a year for three, four years to go to business school. You know, that's too late. Uh, also, part, a big part of the value of going to business school is the Rolodex that you get at the end of it. So these are your contacts that you will, you know, work with and it's your network that uh, will serve you well during your career. You don't really need that because you already sort of have a network of, uh, of uh, colleagues and friends. And so they said, you know, buy this book called 10 Day MBA <laughs> and read that and you'll get sort of, you know, the, the, the basics of, uh, of the actual business part. And so I did, and it was very interesting. I just, uh, it was all new to me and it was very fascinating. It was very interesting. And I thought, okay, if I'm not going to become a product manager here, how else am I going to uh, learn all the business stuff, all the, you know, all the non-programming stuff? And at the same time, I had seen another company called Gliffy, who was uh, these two two guys in San Francisco, and they uh, made a uh, diagramming tool that interfaced with Atlassian Confluence Wiki. And I heard there was two guys, and we loved this tool, and I thought, oh, man, I could build something like this. 
you know, the, the the tool was also built in Flash, which is which is what I was working on. So I was like, maybe I can do a similar tool, but more focused, smaller, because it was something that we needed for work. And so I thought, you know, this could be a way for me to learn. I could just start a company of one person, and that way, every single thing has to go through me, and I'm going to have to figure out every single thing. That's really what my motivation was to uh, venture out. It was, the whole thing was a learning experiment that I never believed would last more than a year or two. So what I did was I decided I was going to do this and I put away enough money to live off of for a year and then I quit my job and saying, I'll probably be back in a year, please, you know, uh, I might come back uh, in a year uh, when this fails. But I want to basically take this sort of sabbatical to try it out, to learn uh, all this stuff. So that was my motivation. And luckily, you're in San Francisco, where quitting your job to start a company wasn't even that crazy. Yes, yes. I, uh, that was the thing to do in 2008, or it still is, I bet. It is kind of a, of a crazy environment where you th- that's considered sort of not so crazy. And in fact, a lot of people do it. My difference was that I couldn't afford to do this while living in San Francisco. And so I moved back to Italy, where I'm from, to do it from here because the cost of living was going to be much cheaper here. Yeah, I tried to stay in San Francisco and bootstrap indie hackers from here when I first started it. And the rate at which I was burning through my savings, I do not recommend it. Do you remember some of the early decisions that you made when you left to start Balsamic and how the idea kind of shaped in your mind early on? Well, uh, my instinct is to reply nothing, but actually it was not nothing because I had worked a large, successful software company for six years. I had absorbed a lot from my time at Adobe. And so I I often tell people who are out of school and they're thinking of, starting a business that it's much riskier to do it that way rather than, you know, go work at Google, go work at Apple, go work at, you know, at some large company for a while, do your time, do your homework, build a network, uh, make your mistakes in a sheltered environment before jumping in. Uh, You will learn so much and you will have a network of advisors. And I know that's not advice people want to hear, but uh, I feel like for me, it was critical to my success. So I knew I think of, a thing or, or two because of my experience there. And then when I decided to uh, quit and, and and jump, I started reading books like crazy. I, I read usability books, uh, web design books, uh, marketing books, you know, not just books, but back in 2008, we had a thing called RSS. So I was devouring articles uh, on different blogs and, and resources. Thankfully, Content marketing was becoming a thing. So there was all this free content to learn from. Not too much like right now. It was just the right amount then. So I spent months, the months before launch, just studying and studying and studying. And you know what? I haven't stopped. <laughs> I, still, <laughs> I still don't know what I'm doing. And I'm still uh, learning a ton and doing online research about this and that. And you know what? That that To me, that's why I'm doing this. It, that hasn't changed at all. My motivation has always been to learn and keep learning and, and keep getting better and, and just uh, try to crack this uh, crazy uh, nut that is uh, owning a software business. 
I've watched a lot of your talks over the years, and I think more so than anyone, you spend a lot of time quoting other founders, other entrepreneurs. And so, yeah, I can kind of see that you're, you're forever a student. You're always learning from others. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not, like, you know, being a, being a pundit to me, that, that's sort of a, a, a uh, offensive. I don't know anything. I just try to learn from everybody and put it together and try to give it my spin. But I don't feel like I've come up with a single uh, a single good idea. So that's kind of a <laughs> probably heartening for your listeners. You don't have to be this crazy genius that, you know, can have these deep thoughts. You can just absorb from others. <laughs> <laughs> or you can always pretend to be one. <laughs> so you got pretty far as a solo founder before you ever started hiring anyone. Do you remember how yeah. far you got as a solo founder? Yeah, so I think it was about... About 3,000 customers. It was about eight months since launch. I was alone. Actually, I'm lying. About five months in, I asked my wife for help to answer some emails because I was drowning. And she did that for a bit. But then after about eight months, I started uh, doing support all week. You know, you know, all the non-development stuff all week. And then I would code in the weekend when the emails were not coming in so quickly. And so I did six weeks of this regime. And then one morning I woke up sweating bullets thinking I was going to die. <laughs> <laughs> I can't do this anymore. And so I thought I'm going to have to hire someone, which was terrifying to me because that was never the plan. My my inspiration was... Patrick McKenzie, who spoke on this on this podcast before, you know, he had this bingo card creator. He had a one person business for many years. That that was my my goal, you know. Or Andy Bryce with Perfect Table Plan. I love that idea that you can have a tiny little thing that you just care for, and you serve your little niche market, and you do that, and that's your lifestyle business. That was my my absolute dream. Hiring someone else did not fit in that dream. Uh, it was going to be much more responsibility than what I wanted. I was not that ambitious. But I sort of found myself being forced to make this, to change my dream. And so I hired a developer telling him, listen, I have one year of salary in the bank right now. I, I can guarantee you that. After that, we'll see. I was still thinking it was going to fail. <laughs> So, but then it grew from there. So over the years, I've had to do this changing dream. Being, I've been forced to change my dream uh, several times as the company grew and grew. 3,000 customers is a gigantic amount to grow to in, I think you said, eight months just by yourself. Do you remember how much revenue you were generating? Yeah, it was not fun. I don't really know. Let me try to remember. I think the first year... I generated about $165,000. Wow. That was in six months. The first, yeah, 2008. That was in the first six months. It basically blew up in my face. Talk about product market fit. The first sale happened four days before I actually officially launched. I got an email from the credit card uh, processor. And I was like, that's strange. I'm not testing that right now. And then I look and it was an actual customer that had found me via Google and I bought the, the software even before I launched. <laughs> That's great. So it, it really sold itself uh, from the beginning. 
Do you remember what you were doing to find customers? I mean, it, it sounds like it took off from that many customers. It's not like you found them each one by one uh, by hand. No, nothing. What kind of efforts were you putting into to finding people? Nothing. I was trying. I was, uh, it felt like being on the outside of a rocket hanging on with my fingers. Uh, and the rocket was just going and I would, you know, like kick it to try to steer it in a direction or the other. It just came by itself. What I did was focus on the product. The product was good and was uh, unique. It was, uh, it had a viral component inside the product, right? Before Balsamic, the sketchy look, you know, the, the hand drawn look only existed in SketchUp, the 3D modeling tool. It's very weird to build software that lets your customers generate crappy looking things, right? That's not, <laughs> that, that took some guts, but it's the right thing to do. And uh, as soon as anybody saw a wireframe made with Balsamic, they would immediately ask, hey, how did you make that? That's very unique, right? So the software itself was its own marketing. Other than that, I um, was really craving feedback because the software was, you know, 1.0. It was a crappy piece of software. It was very young. Uh, so I wanted to know, find out which were the roughest edges, what I should work on first. And so I was craving feedback. And so what I decided to do was to uh, donate the software to bloggers in exchange for an honest review. Uh, and this had the side effect that my um, my software was on everybody's blog all of a sudden. It turns out that bloggers really like free stuff. And so I had a ton of reviews and they were mostly favorable and they linked back to my site, which generated good SEO. In hindsight, it was a genius move. But at the time, what I, I was honestly doing it as a way to sort of get reviews, get, get uh, ideas on what to work on next. Yeah, I'm reading a blog post from from 2008, I think, or 2000 January 2009. We were looking back at 2008, and you mentioned that you were the number one result on Google searches, not only for Balsamic, but also for web office plugins and for just the word mockups. So I imagine that this blogging yeah. strategy really paid off. You had tons of searches coming in from Google. Yeah. The other thing is that you know I picked a tiny niche, right? And I did because. I wanted this software to exist and I Googled around and found nothing, right? So clearly the other players that were there were not very good and did not do good SEO, you know, so it was, the bar was pretty low, right? When I came in. So 10 years is a long time. We're talking about stuff that happened back in 2008. I don't even know how to walk through the story of Balsamic in 10 years and just the time we have remaining. Let me ask you, if you had to divide Balsamic up into phases or, or eras, what would they be? So, uh, yes, I think right now we're around version four. So in 2007, this was before launching, we call this phase the idea, right? I made a business plan and I, I built a sort of MVP, et cetera. Then 2008 to 2010, a couple of years was more of a version zero or a let's see if this works kind of phase. Uh, it was me and then it became two or three of us. And then in 2010, we had our first company retreat. There were six of us. And uh, I thought, this is it. This is what I want forever now. I don't want a large team. I wanted to be alone and that failed. 
but I think with six people, we can, uh, we can do this for, for a long time. And I'm comfortable managing five people. That lasted three months that day. <laughs> <laughs> because what happened in 2010, we got an acquisition offer and we came very close to selling the company. And as part of that, we realized that this vision of staying with six people was just not realistic. And so we were sort of forced to come up with a new vision quickly. And so we rejected the offer and entered this new phase, which was we hire three or four more people and we try to grow to become big enough that we won't get an acquisition offer ever again. That was the goal at the time. And so that was sort of Balsamic 2.0. And then in 2013, we hired six or seven people because we could afford to, we were overworked and we decided to create a handbook in preparation for hiring all these people. And so the company went from 10 to 20 people around that. And that was, that was felt different. Then in 2014, for a few years, we sort of matured. We, we cleaned up a few things. We uh, built some tools inter- internally that help us work better. So for a few years, we did that and uh, we sort of refined our processes. Then let's see, 2016 until today, we were about 20, 25 people. And so we sort of codified more of how we work. We're still a flat company. And um, and I have a whole talk uh, online about this phase. And then recently, the last six months or so, or maybe 12 months, we're entering a whole new phase where we basically try to get set up for another decade of success. The first decade was too much revolving around me. And the goal of the next decade is to have Balsamic become independent of me, stronger than me, just a a bigger, more solid, uh, better company. And so we are in the process of... uh, try to define uh, how that's going to work. I met you at the Business of Software conference last October, and you gave a talk about this this new phase, this next decade of Balsamic, and you called it, you've made it, now what? And I really want to talk about that, uh, hopefully toward the end of this episode, because it was a fascinating talk that I haven't really heard very many people speak toward. But before that, you made a lot of early decisions at Balsamic. You made the decision to have your mock-ups look like these hand-drawn sketches. So they didn't look great, but they were quick and dirty. You made the decision to target a really tiny niche. Looking back now, 10 years later, are there any decisions that you fretted over in the early days that ended up not mattering at all? And which decisions would you say mattered the most for you to build a company that lasted so long? That's a tough question because I have very bad memory. I am uh, still fully oriented in the future. Uh, I don't dwell on uh, past decisions much. And maybe that's part of the reason for my success, I think. So who knows? I've made uh, lots of bad decisions. I I, uh, I, I do that all the time. It doesn't really matter, though. What matters is how quickly you can fix them and, and learn from them. So it's hard for me to say, you know, good, bad, good, bad. Right. So about worrying about things at the beginning, everything seems impossible. It seems like you're facing this giant wall and you have to climb it with your bare hands and because you've never done it before. Like 
hiring a lawyer, right? Things like that. Accounting stuff, figuring out accounting stuff, right? It's things that are so foreign that they look so daunting. And how am I ever going to learn about this? But then, you know, you just have to do it and you learn it. And then once you learned enough, you look back and you think, how silly of me to be so worried about this. You know, it's not, it's not that hard. It always looks much easier after you've learned enough. You don't even have to become an expert to feel that way. So I've learned after a few of these experiences, I've learned to not be afraid of the giant wall and just know that it, it just looks giant because it's new. It's not, it's probably not the, uh, you know, impossible to master, right? So that's the advice I would give to someone just getting started. You know, if you feel that way, it's a good sign. It means you're about to learn a bunch, but, you know, be uh, optimistic that in just a few weeks, you will look back and, and think, why did I lose sleep over this, right? Do you feel that way? Do you, do you, uh, has that happened to you? Oh, yeah, all the time. I remember the early days of Indie Hackers. I was terrified to send each and every email newsletter that I sent. I was afraid to email advertisers. I kind of delayed doing that for two or three months just because I I don't know. I just had some block around. I didn't want to do it. Uh, The podcast was terrifying when I first started. And even now, making changes to the website is always kind of nerve-wracking. Yeah, some of these worries are actually healthy. um, For many years, I was behaving under the assumption that prof, uh, revenue could go to zero tomorrow. And uh, I wanted to be okay with that. I wanted to be prepared for that. So that means that we have always saved a bunch of cash in the in the bank uh, for when that day comes. Uh, uh, we still have a policy where we keep 18 months of uh, expenses in the bank at all times in case revenue goes to zero. That way we know we have 18 months to figure out how to make revenue restart. Uh, So, and that's a good thing to do in general, right? So some of these worries, even if they're completely stupid, they help you behave responsibly. So they're not, they're, they're healthy that way, I think. That's a really interesting example because it's illustrative of what I was talking about earlier, which is that you've bootstrapped a business that was built to last. Balsamics has been around for 10 years, and that's because you set out to build a sustainable business that would stand the test of time. And you're worried more about you know the business sticking around and being a healthy business than you are about it growing as rapidly as it can at all costs and reinvesting all of your profits into growth. Yeah, no, that was never, that was never the goal. And the, our goal is longevity, not growth. I think you're a guy in general who has a lot of unconventional ideas. I mean, you were doing a remote-only company way before it was cool. Uh, you kept your organization <laughs> flat, and you had avoided having you know, managers for as long as you possibly could. You tried all sorts of, of experimental things like holacracy. Uh, you described yourself as being allergic to collecting and analyzing metrics, which I, I think is anathema to many companies uh, and startups. <laughs> I, I think the list goes on. So what's the deal here? Why go against the grain so often? Oh, it's not deliberate, really. It's not that, you know, I want to be different. It's more about trying things out and seeing what feels right. Um, I don't think I'm that much against the grain, you know, like the focus on the product and uh, the, and just the business model of selling a tool for money, right? 
that's not against the grain. You are against the grain. You know, Silicon Valley is against the grain. Selling people for <laughs> selling items for money is the oldest business model in the world. The attention economy is the passing terrible business model of the last 20 years. I'm not the different one. Everybody else is the different one. Same for all the other things, right? Trying to make a business focused on uh, making it last a long time. Even the big startups, that's what they say they want. And and maybe for some of those startups, in order to be lo- to to be lasting a long time, they have to be the winner that takes all. And that's fine, you know, if it works for them. That was never my ambition. So I don't know. I don't know. Uh, maybe it's because I don't live in Silicon Valley anymore. Uh, maybe it's because I'm not from there. Maybe because I am more cautious than uh, than uh, ambitious. It's my upbringing. It's the people around me. It's what I read. Who knows? Every person is different. I want to talk a little bit about the feeling of success because there's this concept of a hedonic adaptation or sometimes called the hedonic treadmill where no matter how much things change, we as human beings are pretty good at adapting. So you make a million dollars a year, a year or two later, you've completely adapted to that and you no longer feel that much different than you did uh, beforehand. Balsamic has always been has been growing. I think you know you said you're doing close to six million or a little bit over six million dollars in revenue a year. Now you've got dozens of employees. At what point did you acclimate to this? Did it ever become normal? Or are you still sort of looking around going like, wow, I can't believe this is my life? Oh, uh, there's a there's a good amount of that. A good amount of feeling blessed and uh, lucky and privileged. A lot of my success comes because, uh, you know, my parents sent me to California in the summer to learn English, right? If you read Malcolm Gladwell, the Outliers book is all about, you know, you are the sum of your generations of people before you and and the uh, right timing too, right? So I'm very much aware that I, uh, you know, I am a white male. Uh, there's a lot of in, intrinsic privilege there. So I am very much uh, humbled by the success that I've had. At the same time, in the last few years, as revenue has uh, stabilized, it's easier to get used to it because you know a lot of it is SaaS recurring revenue now, and so it's more predictable. And so with that, you start feeling more secure that, you know, this thing is, this thing is probably going to keep going for a while. Right. At the beginning it was up and down, up and down. And so, you know, it was like, let's live day by day. Let's not plan further than two months because we might not be around for two months. But then as the company matures, that horizon gets longer and longer. About the treadmill, it is a very tempting treadmill to be on. Right. It's very true. It's human nature. But I try to resist it. Uh, after a while, you know, if you make a million dollars a year or two million dollars a year, it's really not that different. The the, the biggest difference right now is that uh, I fly business class on uh, on planes, and that is amazing. <laughs> that is the best. Sorry. So you know, to me, that's that's uh, that's the the biggest luxury that I, I that I want to give myself. Everything else, it's 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 fine. So 
it's all about sustaining it. It's all about making it making it last a long time. I have taken less dividends this year. I will take uh, very little next year because the company, I want to reinvest in the company. We hired another bunch of people last year. And that's fine because... You know, I know that if I do things right, uh, this thing will last a long time and then I'll take dividends again next, you know, in the future. Again, it's more about longevity than, than quick, a quick buck. If it was about a quick buck, I would have sold. So let's talk a little bit about the practical aspects of longevity. A lot of people have companies where they figure out how to acquire customers, they figure out how to make a product that works for a year or two, and then things change and they have to change everything about their business just to keep up. Has that been the case with you? And are there any big decisions you've had to make, uh, changes you've had to make to Balsamic to keep it running and make sure it didn't become obsolete? So uh, not a lot because of the problem that I chose to solve or, you know, because I was lucky enough to choose a problem with certain characteristics. The wireframing space is uh, both too small for big players to go after and too big for small players to really uh, compete with. If the market is about $10 million a year, if the global market for wireframing tools is maybe $10, $15 million a year total, that's not enough for a big player to want to play. It, it's not worth uh, their money to go after such a small market. At the same time, there's not too much room for big players, you know, big uh, in the sense of balsamic big, in a space like that. And so we sort of were lucky to start dominating this market pretty early on. At the first few years, it was, you know, competitive. And then we sort of became the the leaders in the space, and and we've been uh, sort of been left alone on both sides. So this is a luxury that I have because of the size of the market that I went after. If you're going to try to become the next Instagram, uh, you better believe that big people with a lot of money are going to go after you because the potential is huge, right? But if you choose a small enough uh, market, people might largely leave you alone. What about some of the practical aspects of acquiring customers? Have you changed the channels through which you guys have found Balsamic Wireframes users? Has is, is SEO become more or less important over time or blogging, or has it pretty much stayed the same since 2008? We still basically don't do any marketing. We lead with the product. The product has to be so good that people tell their friends about it. And again, it sounds radical, but... Uh, you know, that was what Steve Jobs used to say, you know, about uh, Apple products. So just, you know, if the product is good, everything else comes easier. How do you make a product that's so good that you can really grow via word of mouth and people like to talk about how good it is to their friends and spread it that way? Because I think that's a, kind of a common goal. And, and especially as like a solo developer, it's not an easy bar to hit. No, it's not easy. Uh, it's true. It's not easy. Usability is... Uh, user experience is, uh, you, you know, interface design is not an easy thing. It doesn't come for everybody naturally, but it can be learned. In fact, uh, we have a whole section of our new uh, website, balsami.com slash learn, which is all about learning how to do interface design as a non-designer. It's not easy and it takes a ton of discipline. You say no 90% of the time because it 
It might make a few customers happy, but it might muddle the experience for everybody else. You know, it's a lot of self discipline and uh, uh, focus, and also this sort of lack of ambition, right? We don't want to be the tool for everybody. We want, we have a very narrow focus. You know, we're a wireframing tool, not a prototyping tool. We're not going to give you, uh, you know, you can link things to screens together, but that's it. We're never going to give you conditional flows or hover actions or all that kind of stuff. Other tools can do that. If we did that, we would have to charge more, change, you know, compete with different players, change things completely, and the tool would be harder to learn. We're happy being the first tool you use and part of your tool belt. You know, you, we don't have to only use Balsamic, use Balsamic and other things. And sort of this sort of uh, laser focus and a willingness to leave money on the table is tough to maintain over time. The temptation is is strong, but uh, I feel like if you don't do it, uh, you're shooting yourself in the foot. We've seen it with a bunch of competitors that will compete with us and not be able to, and they would add a bunch of buttons everywhere and a bunch of features, and then two years later, they were dead. Let's talk a little bit about this this talk you gave at the Business of Software and the way that your role has changed and the last six months you said, where you're really looking forward now to Balsamic over the next decade being a company that doesn't depend on Peldi and doesn't necessarily need Peldi. You at some point tried stepping away to help the business run without you. When did you start feeling like that was something that you really needed to do? And what triggered those feelings? Let's see. I think what triggered it was uh, the fact that we turned 10. And that to me was a, um, you know, a, a, a a milestone that I'd been looking forward to for nine years, <laughs> you know? And I thought, all right, we lasted a decade. We're now 30 people. We're still flat, but we're not really flat because really I'm, manage- I'm the only people manager. I'm not doing a good job at that because I can't, I don't have enough time to be the manager for a good manager for 30 people. What am I really needed for? And how can we redesign Balsamic to be stronger than just me? Because I'm not going to be around forever. No one is. My focus shifted from building the product. The product is 10 years old, it's mature, it's good. We know what we have to do, but overall, it doesn't require all my attention like in the past. And so now, you know, after I had finished this milestone of running a company for 10 years, I needed to come up with another dream and then another 10-year project for myself. And I thought maybe this could be it. It could be figuring out how to build this company so that it can surpass me, not just outlive me, but also be better than it, without me than with me. And to me, that's very exciting. That is, a, is an exciting uh, experiment that I'm happy to dedicate the next, you know, five years or more or two. And so the first step was, let's find out how, what am I really needed for? And I did it in a reckless way where I said, okay, starting today, I don't do anything at all anymore. Let's see what breaks. And I did that for a few months and uh, and things broke. <laughs> but uh, so in the end, uh, the experiment worked. One of the things you started doing once you were able to pull back and let things break without your direct day-to-day involvement was go back to to strategizing and thinking at a higher level and, and watching videos of other founders giving talks and giving more talks yourself. 
a lot of people in the audience are trying to learn this business of starting starting companies. What are some of the things that you learned once you pulled back and did more learning yourself? Huh, you know, I wish I had pulled back and spent time learning and strategizing. Really, what I did was I pulled back and panicked <laughs> and got depressed and didn't know what to do with myself or my life. So what I learned is don't do it this way. Do it more, much more gradually. And also, I think the main lesson is try to, and I know this is nearly impossible, but try not to tie your uh, sense of worth to the company. Try to have a separate, fulfilled self than, than the business. And that's, like I said, nearly impossible because if you're a founder, that's all you think about day and night forever, right? So there's no time to, to do anything else, to be anything else. Although I've always kept a good family uh, life balance, that's, but it's not, more, it's not about the hours you spent working. It's more about how you describe yourself to yourself, right? I've always been founder and CEO of Balsamic. That defines me. But that's not healthy. It's healthier to have your own you know, be able to like yourself even outside of the of the work. And so, for instance, I started, uh, I joined a, a woodworking class and there nobody knew me, right? So people laughed at my joke, not because I was the boss, but because I was funny and that made me feel good, you know? So, you know, try to, you know, invest in your social life, in your connections outside of work. Try not to think about work all the time. And, you know, re- Try to do this. Try to think about your job as a job. You know, someday you might not want to do that job anymore. I know it's hard to imagine if that's your company that we're talking about. But, you know, you'll be 75 one day and maybe you'll be tired of running the company. Thinking about it that way prepares you and, and I think is a, is a good way to, uh, to make the company uh, stronger as well. One of the really cool things I think that you did after you started feeling this way was you called up a bunch of other founders who had been in similar situations, who were very experienced, who had long-lasting companies. And you sort of asked them what they thought about life after an exit. In fact, you actually read a paper called Life After an Exit. Yeah. And some of the, the quotes that you talked about in your talk were – you had a quote from Joel Spolsky where he asked, do you remember why you liked bootstrapping in the first right. place? You had a quote from DHH who advise you, hey, it's your company. You can shape it however you want to make yourself the happiest. Yeah. Chris and Natalie Nageli uh, at Wildbit told you that, you know, sometimes hobbies can make things worse, which I thought was an interesting yeah, warning. That's true. And Jason Cohen told you to be careful about running away from something versus running towards something. Yeah. How did this advice shape you? And how should other people who are building companies think about really making the decision to sort of separate themselves from their companies and, and do what you were just saying earlier, try to not define yourself as the founder? Regardless of all the great advice that they gave me, the main benefit of reaching out was that I no longer felt alone with these struggles. Lots of people go through whatever you're going through. There are other people that are going through the same phase of the company, the same struggles you have. So having a sort of a mastermind group is, I feel, critical. It's like having a therapist, right? But better because they know exactly, you know, they're living it as well. You know, there's this study where they say in order that the strongest correlation to happiness in life is not money or anything. It's the 
number and quality of your connections, right? And so that's something that I feel like a lot of founders tend to neglect because they're too busy or, you know, it's lonely at the top. You have to be the sort of solo hero at the top of your company, but that's a mistake. You know, try to sort of always cultivate a group of uh, peers, which will change over time because you might outgrow your group, right? But try to really have these conversations. The, the, the conversation themselves is is what matters. I, I think that's a great way to end the episode, talking about the keys to happiness, the number yeah. and quality of relations to other yeah. people, which is tough to maintain as a founder working so hard on a business. Anyway, Peldi, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been great hearing your story. Can you tell listeners where they can go to learn more about Balsamic and the things you're doing in your personal life as well, if you share that kind of stuff online? Yes. So to learn uh, more about Balsamic and uh, and my history, you should go to balsamic.com. It's spelled with a Q instead of a C because we're not vinegar. And then if you go to About Us and there's a Talks and Interviews page where you can watch talks that I've given over the years since 2010. And uh, I think that those are uh, very useful for other founders, I guess. And then uh, personal life, I uh, I don't share it. I, uh, I'm uh, retreating from social media more and more other than uh, privately sharing through family and things. But that's a whole other conversation. All right. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Peldy. Thank you very much, Cortland. If you enjoyed listening to this conversation and you want a really easy way to support the podcast, why don't you head over to iTunes and leave us a quick rating or even a review? If you're looking for an easy way to get there, just go to ndhackers.com slash review, and that should open up iTunes on your computer. I read pretty much all the reviews that you guys leave over there, and it really helps other people to discover the show, so your support is very much appreciated. In addition, if you are running your own internet business, or if that's something you hope to do someday, you should join me and a whole bunch of other founders on the ndhackers.com website. It's a great place to get feedback on pretty much any problem or question that you might have while running your business. If you listen to the show, you know that I am a huge proponent of getting help from other founders rather than trying to build your business all by yourself. So you'll see me on the forum for sure, as well as more than a handful of some of the guests that I've had on the podcast. If you're looking for inspiration, we've also got a huge directory full of hundreds of products built by other indie hackers, every one of which includes revenue numbers and some of the behind the scenes strategies for how they grew their products from nothing. As always, thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.